0: I'm Jason. I am one of the pastors here. Um, I'm, I do the youth stuff. I do some associate pastor stuff. And so um, this week, Tim gave me the opportunity to talk to you guys, and I am so thankful. Um, one of the things that I am thankful for is that we have such good um, help around here. When, when I'm in this role, and Alyssa's able to get up here, she does announcements really well. And um, I don't know if you guys know, like, did you see in that video? That was our, that's our Grand Mesa, that was our video team. We, we have people in our church that make these videos for us. Um, my friend Jared told me the other day, he's like, I got I to gotta get up on the Mesa to get some drone shots for your intro video. And I was like, sweet. So, um, so thank you. Everybody that helps behind the scenes, thank you. You guys are amazing. Um, real quick, I want to ask you guys a question. Do you, um, you ever feel like you don't know what to do, but that you're doing it wrong? Whatever it is, right? Like, and, and I realize this is, gonna, this is gonna happen in all different kinds of, uh, or parts of our life, right? For me, I think it shows up a lot whenever I'm parenting. Like, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. At any given stage in my kid's life, I'm like, I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure I'm screwing it up, <laughs> right? Like, and if you're a parent or you've been a parent, um, you, you know that feeling, right? That like, w- there is no manual, really. We're just sort of flying blind. And a lot of times it's after the fact we go, oh yeah, I screwed that up. <laughs> right? Like, that's not how I wanted my kid to, to act, right, or, or whatever it is, and it doesn't stop at parenting. I, I think that we find this problem of not knowing what to do, but feeling like we're doing it wrong in all kinds of areas. Like, maybe somebody in your life looks up to you, you're their mentor, whether you signed up for it or not, and you're like, I have no idea how to mentor somebody, but I'm screwing them up right? Or maybe uh, it's in a friendship and you're like, I, I, I look back at my friendships and I'm like, I'm pretty bad at this. I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. Or maybe it's uh, as a spouse, right? Like raise your hand if, wait, raise your, not your spouse's hand, okay? <laughs> that wouldn't be fair for you to raise somebody else's hand, right? But we get in these situations where um, it's like, I, I'm not sure I know what to do, but I'm pretty sure I'm doing it wrong. And and maybe sometimes it's a new season in life. Maybe you had a great relationship with your parent, but as they age and suddenly you're taking care of them, you're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm gonna screw it up. In fact, even, uh, there was a study for employees back in 2016. Half of all employees don't know whether or not they're doing a good job at work. Half. Half of the workforce has no idea whether they are doing good or bad. And then we get to that annual review. I don't know if you you guys love your annual reviews, right, at work? You get to your annual review and you have no idea. You're walking into like, is this good? Is this bad? It's been 364 days since somebody told me I was doing okay or not. Because half of us don't have any idea. And how many of you, when you don't know how you're doing, you assume you're doing something wrong? You assume you're doing it poorly? I think that's the default for a lot of us. Like, if we don't know how we're doing, we must be doing poorly. Like, maybe somebody gave you a big project at work um, to put on some event, and, and you did it, and then crickets. Nobody said anything bad, but, but nobody came and told you how good you did either, and so your first thought is, well, that must have been horrible, right? Nobody, nobody has the courage to come tell me how bad I did, and we, we default to, if we don't know, we must be doing it wrong. And see, the, the problem is, I think that that tendency in us carries over into our walk with God, too. Because we want everything to be black and white. And, and, I, and I say that, I'm sure a lot of you guys are like, no, I'm a free spirit, I, don't, I, don't, I hate rules, right? The reality is that deep down, we like rules. We like things to be black and white because then we know how to play the game, Right, we know whether or not we're hitting the mark or not. Is this allowed? Is this not allowed? Am am I supposed to be doing this or not? Am I doing a good job or not? Black and white really helps us with that. And, And some of us are rule followers and some of us aren't, but the problem is the Christian life is full of a lot of gray areas, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily black or white. What am I supposed to do? And it's sort of this gray area and and another problem to add to that is that all of your favorite christians around you don't agree isn't that frustrating when you're like what am i supposed to do and you go ask your your aunt who's been a christian for a long time and she's got one opinion and then you go talk to your your friend in your bible study and he's completely on the the other end of the spectrum like what do we do in areas like that areas like drinking alcohol am i am i allowed to have a drink Or watching certain movies, right? Is there like a rating limit for Christians? Like, where do we stop? Or reading that book? Are you allowed to read that book? Or can I go smoke a cigar with my buddy? Is that okay? Are you allowed to spend the night with your boyfriend if you promise to just cuddle? Right? How How you dress, how you talk, is it okay to cuss? Everybody at work cusses, right? And there's all this stuff that it just feels like this gray area, right? And... Christians around us all have different opinions about this kind of stuff. So how do we deal with this? Because the the problem is when we don't know, we feel like we're doing it wrong, right? Wouldn't it be nice to know what to do? Wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if somebody just told you, if only I knew what was expected. Say, I wanna know what's right. I wanna know what's wrong. Because knowledge is power, right? I, I feel like I don't know, but I'm gonna get to that bad review, right? Like, at some point, I'm gonna be standing before Jesus, and he's gonna be like, all right, review time. That was wrong. Like, I didn't know! That's not fair, right? It, wouldn't it be nice if we knew? What we're gonna do today is, is we're gonna look at a passage, and we're gonna, we're gonna go to a letter that Paul wrote. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to start turning there. Um, I want to give you some background, though, because a lot of times what we do here is we teach through a book. And so we're giving you background as we're going, and we're gonna jump to the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And so what you need to know about this book, it's actually a letter. It's a letter from an apostle, from Paul, to this church in Corinth. And they had a lot of questions. In fact, the whole book is about maturing. It's about growing up in your faith. And the reason that they had so many questions was because Corinth, see, this was a Greek city, And and if you know your Bible, you know that there was this long history, what we would call the Old Testament, there's this long history of God's people on earth, Israel, And when the gospel encountered God's people, there was this starting point, this this consensus on what morality looked like, what, what a good moral life looked like. But see, the gospel didn't stop with the Jews in Israel. It went out. And whenever the gospel landed in Corinth, it encountered a people that looked nothing like God's people from the Old Testament. Their morality structure, their social structure was so... So different. Corinth was the the place where the temple for Aphrodite was. So Greek God, they were worshiping Aphrodite, they were worshiping idols. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And so their temple at Corinth was known for temple prostitution. That was just normal part of religious activity in Corinth. And they worshiped idols, right, because that was normal. Um, So much of what they did was so different. So they've got all these questions like, Paul, what do we do? Thank you for telling us about Jesus. What do we do with that? And it's all about maturing. And see, here's the thing. They were all saved out of idol worship. And we get to this this question that they've got that Paul has to answer. Am I allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Right, for us, we're like, well, that's weird. (laughs) I I don't know the last time I had that question. Um, (laughs) Certainly not lately, right? Um, But here's the problem, if you're in Corinth, the best meat, the best steak, is gonna be at the temple market. Because just like in the Old Testament Jewish law, they would sacrifice animals, they just weren't sacrificing them to, to God, they were sacrificing them to idols. And so they would sacrifice an animal and then you had this meat available. So if you wanted a good roast for dinner, right, you'd go to the temple market to get it. And then the problem is there were two camps You had two groups of of Christians, and they didn't agree on whether or not this was okay. You had one camp, we'll call them the the restriction camp, the restrictive camp. They they said, we shouldn't participate in this, because we don't want to appear like we're approving of this other religion, right? We should stay as far away as possible. We We shouldn't touch anything that has to do with idol worship at all, lest we give the appearance that that's okay and shame the gospel, That's the restrictive camp. But you also had the freedom camp. And the freedom camp said that idols aren't real in the first place. That's a piece of wood. That's a piece of stone. It doesn't matter that it was sacrificed to that piece of wood because that thing's not real in the first place. We should go ahead and eat it and show everybody that we don't think that that idol's real and bring glory to Jesus. Two camps, a restrictive camp and a freedom camp. And they they wanted to know. And so they sent this question to Paul. But see, here's the thing. I think that's a lot like church culture today. We have two camps. On on what do we do as Christians? You have the restrictive camp. Maybe maybe you grew up in a, a tradition or a home or an era where certain things were just a little more restrictive than they are today and you're kind of uncomfortable with the way we live our life now. Right? Maybe um, you were taught to, to dress a certain way at church or that you, you couldn't have alcohol or, or you know, fill in the blank, right? But we also have the, the freedom side, right? In fact, I'd say in our culture, um, this, this side has a whole lot more people in it right now. right? That, that we are free. So you imagine these two groups that are, that are asking Paul this question and they get the letter back from Paul. And I imagine all of them have to sit in a room to read Paul's letter together. So you have two camps. You have the restriction, restriction camp and you have the, the freedom camp and they all sit down and they're thumbing through Paul's letter and they're, they're excited because we finally get to chapter eight where the question gets answered. Let's read it together. Verse one. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. And actually, I like the way that the translator here put quotes around we all possess knowledge because I think that 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 feels like what Paul is trying to say here. Like, everybody thinks they know what's right. Everybody knows something, right? Everybody's got an opinion. You all have some kind of knowledge on the matter. Both camps right? And and the reality is that in in this case, both camps thought that they were doing what they were doing to honor Jesus. There was this knowledge that, like, we know that we shouldn't participate in other religions. Well, we know that those idols are just pieces of wood. Everybody has some knowledge. And then I love it, we get to this this thing, um, this statement, and if you don't hear anything from me today, take home this thing that the, the Bible says, okay? Just this one One line, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Would you repeat that after me? Knowledge and love. Everybody loves a know-it-all, don't we? You guys all, like your favorite people in your life are the know-it-alls. You know, um, what's funny is when I'm building a message, um, there, there are points where I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a story or a person or an example to kind of put in there to make things make sense. And so um, I I was trying the other day, I was trying to remember a story about a know-it-all, about somebody, some tool that like always has an answer for everything, right? They always have to correct things in conversation. It's me. (laughs) I'm sitting there at my desk figuring, I had already written down, everybody loves a know-it-all, find an example, and I'm like, oh no. I'm the example. Like, I, I had a friend over uh, the other night, and, and we were sitting around the table, and, and my friend rattled off a statistic that I didn't think was right, right? No harm, no foul, right? We just move on with the conversation. I couldn't handle it. I was like, that, that's, I don't think that that's right. So right in front of his wife, my wife, my kids, um, I, I got out Google. Google that one, that's not... Hey, guys, nope, that's not right. That wasn't, that wasn't the right... Um, like I was saving us from being wrong. You know what I mean? I'm sure you guys are gonna fight over inviting me over now. (laughs) Like, I probably just cleared my schedule. (laughs) But seriously, like, we we don't like a know-it-all, do we? We, Those aren't our our favorite people are not the people that know everything. And maybe maybe that is you. Maybe you're a lot like me. And you're like, oh, I do that. Verse four. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know, and knowledge does what? Puffs up. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things come and through whom we live. Paul picks a side. We've got this these two camps. We've got this argument. And, and Paul picks a side here. He, he says, you know what, the freedom camp is the one who has the right knowledge. The correct knowledge, the, the greater knowledge is that we have freedom to eat the meat because they really are just wood, right? Like there really is only just one God. So Paul picks a side here, and I imagine this group of people sitting in this room, these two camps sitting there, and they were like waiting for the answer, and at this point, somebody jumps up like, in your face, I knew it, I'm so glad, that can we stop arguing about this and go get a steak, right, like, I'm hungry for it, I've been waiting for this answer. We love it when an authority in our life takes our side on something, don't we? I don't know if you've ever been in counseling um, with another person there and you're like, it, the counselor tells them to do something different and you're like, yes. <laughs> like we like it when some authority in our life takes our side and here Paul, Paul picks a side. But verse seven happens, let's keep going. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that not everybody agrees with us on this one. Tread lightly, guys, there's a difference of opinion out there. He says not everyone possesses the knowledge that you possess, and they have a weak conscience. He's not saying, look out for arguments that you can win. Congratulations on having the right answer. He's saying, look out for weak consciences around you. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. And some people, because they're accustomed to idols, that was the life they just came out of. They think that that food has been sacrificed to a God. For them, this is a problem. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He says, you have the right to eat it. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And if you grew up in church, you've heard this stumbling block before, but if this is a a new term to you, it it means literally what you think it means. Imagine somebody is walking on a path and they trip over something and fall down. A stumbling block is whenever we do something that causes somebody who's walking on their journey toward Jesus to trip on their journey, to fall down in their faith. And you know, this comes up quite a bit, really, in in Christian conversation. Um, You shouldn't, as a Christian, be watching Rated-R movies. You shouldn't shouldn't read that book series. You You can't listen to that radio station. You're a Christian, right? You, you shouldn't be eating hot wings at that place. Did you, that's a bar, right? You know that's a bar, right? And you go, why? Well, somebody else might think that that's wrong and it's gonna be a stumbling block. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we're, we're looking out for times where people think it's wrong. A stumbling block is about causing somebody to fall, not annoying somebody that you disagree. And he says, be careful that You're exercising your right, but you're making somebody else trip. Verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, puffs up, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You see, what he's saying here is it's possible to be right and still sin by causing someone else to do what they think is wrong. And see, here's the problem. I think people see our actions, and they don't see what it took for us to get there, right? Right? Somebody sees you drinking a glass of wine and and they don't know that you've done the work to go through scripture and and like, I'm actually, I think I'm okay to do this. I'm convinced that this is okay. They They don't see the background for whatever freedom you're exercising in front of them. They just see the action itself. And... To be honest, when I first read this, I I had a little bit of a problem with it, right? Um, If somebody sees you and they've got a weak conscience, then they're going to be tempted to do the thing. And I'm like, so? Isn't he actually better off? Like, I'm the one with the right knowledge. Maybe my good example of my freedom in Jesus is going to lift him out of that, (laughs) right? Isn't he better off with the correct information because of my example? And Paul says, no, no. Your brother is destroyed by your knowledge. There's a a parallel passage. It's it's in Romans 14. It's basically Paul saying the same thing to another group of people. Um, And and he says this in in verse 22 of Romans 14. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. In other words, um, if you're convinced that it's okay and your conscience is clear, good for you. That's a blessing. But whoever doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. That your heart matters. Your intention behind what you do matters. And so, to finish up our our chapter in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience, and you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I cause or if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that it will not cause them to fall. It's all about their, their conscience. Like, it, imagine that you're convinced that uh, God wants you to walk on the left side of the street and you're hanging out with your Christian friends and they're like, we're going to the right side. And you're like, "Uh, okay, I'll go with you, right? And God's up in heaven like, I honestly could care less. Left side, right side, whatever, dumb street, right? What I care about is that you thought it was wrong and you did it anyways. Because the problem is, if I think something's wrong and I do it anyways, I'm rebelling. Rebellion is a sin, right? And so... Your conviction that it's okay to do something if if done in the wrong way can lead somebody else to do it who doesn't think it's okay and you're causing them to rebel against God. And what verse 12 says here is you're not just wrong against them, you are sinning against Christ. That you're right, but you're not doing the right thing. You're sinning against Jesus. I'm like, what? That, that feels like an injustice to me. You mean Jesus told me that this thing is okay, and then I'm still in trouble with Jesus for doing it? That's not fair. Right? I don't know if you guys feel that way, but like, I'm being held accountable for other people's rules? That's not fair. Like, If, if Jesus doesn't say it's a problem, then why am I sinning? Because in in God's economy, maturing doesn't mean getting more knowledge. The ultimate maturity in God's economy is loving people well. And you look at this and you go, that's not fair, that I should have to follow rules that aren't even like real rules. And God says, "I'm, I'm not really interested in it being fair. I'm interested in you loving people. Remember, this whole book of 1 Corinthians is about maturity, it was about them growing up. What do they do? And Paul says, you can learn what you're allowed to do, but don't let that get in the way of how you love. And he says, I will choose to let go of what I'm convinced I'm right about in order to do the right thing and hold up somebody else's faith. So, let's address the problem that we kind of started with here. How do I know what I'm allowed to do, right? Like what about the gray areas? What do we do in the gray areas? How do I know what I'm allowed to do? And and I wanna talk basically about um, Christian liberty. If you've never heard that, Christian freedom. What does that mean? Um, Basically it means that Christians, after Jesus, were given freedom to do some things that they weren't allowed to do in the Old Testament. the, the shackles of the rules were sort of taken off and in exchange, Jesus says, love people well. And so you have freedom to do things and, and that leaves us with a bunch of gray areas that people don't agree on. And so I'm gonna give you guys four filters or four questions to ask if you're ever wondering, like, am I allowed to do this? Or somebody brings it up to you and they accuses you of it and you're like, you're not supposed to do that. Like, well, are they right? Let's ask some questions. The first one. Is it forbidden in Scripture? You guys, there are some black and whites. There are some absolutes in Scripture. Not all of it is gray. Actually, I think that there's a lot of things that under the guise of Christian freedom, we do a lot of things that God says is wrong. I think that we've let this idea of Christian freedom and God's grace swing so hard to one way that we're just, we feel free to do whatever we want. There's some things that God says are not okay. right? And, and I think a, a good underlying question to help answer this question for you is, is it culturally okay or is it scripturally okay? Or the opposite of that, is it culturally forbidden or is it scripturally Forbidden. See, I, I think like 40, 50 years ago, um, it would have been real common to hear that it's not okay for Christians to drink. It's not okay for you guys to dance. Right? You guys remember Footloose? <laughs> you guys, yeah. Christians have to dress up at church, and you can't have a tattoo. See, culture forbid a bunch of stuff that Scripture didn't forbid. Right? But now, I think we've swung the other way. Culture says it's, it's okay to sleep together before you're married. Culture says it's okay to have an abortion. It's okay to dress however you want, right? Let Instagram be your guide. For those of you guys under 40, let the mannequins be your guide. <laughs> like, dress, dress in whatever's cool, right? The problem is we're letting culture, even if it's church culture, decide what's right or wrong. And the question isn't, does church culture allow this? Does scripture allow this? There are some black and whites. And everybody gets the same answer at this point. If you and I asked the same question of the Bible, we would get the same answer. See, like if if I'm alone in a room with the Bible, one of us is in charge. And it's not me. Right? like uh, I think that we have this problem, we have this tendency to um, put ourselves as the authority over the scriptures that we're reading, and we get to stuff that makes us uncomfortable, and we're like, oh, I, that must not be translated right. We'll look into that someday. right? Um, or that's uh, the, the context problem. I just don't get the context. That's probably not right right? Or that was for then, this is for, and we, we find all kinds of reasons to make ourselves the authority over the Bible. And the reality is that that is backwards. When I'm alone in a room with the Bible, one of us is in charge, and it's not me. When you're alone, who's in charge? When it's you and God, when it's you and his word, who's in charge? And to be honest, I, I think you need to ask this question early and often. Because what'll happen is there'll be a point in your life when you're like, really, you're doing good and you're like submitting to the things you read and then there'll be another point in life where like you're really enjoying whatever sin you find yourself in and suddenly you read the Bible differently. Early and often, put yourself back under the authority of scripture. We all get the same answers at that point. Let's look at another question. Maybe you get past this, is it forbidden in scripture? Nope. Okay, next question, is my conscience clear? That's actually what... That's the underlying premise of 1 Corinthians 8, that somebody's conscience matters, right? If they feel guilty, there's a problem. Do you feel guilty doing it? Is your conscience clear? Remember Romans 14, if if we do something that we think is a sin, whether God said it was in the first place or not, it's a sin now, because you're rebelling. Is my conscience clear? Now, here's a problem, though. I don't know about you, but my conscience gets numb over time. Doesn't that happen to you guys too? And so here's a real practical tool to start with. Did I used to think this was wrong? This thing that I'm doing or this thing that I'm about to do or this thing, somebody accused me of something like a friend said, "Hey, I don't think that's right." And you're like, "I used to agree with you." Did I used to think that it was wrong? And if the answer is yes, you have one of two options. Either you ask the question, "Did I mature?" Or did I get numb? Why why don't I think this is wrong anymore? Let me me give you an example. Um, 20, 30 years ago, um, like whenever I was growing up in youth group, um, the, the youth group culture in church meant to teach that sex outside of marriage is bad. But what we got taught is that sex is bad, right? And so it's like, just stay away from it. You can, you're gonna get these diseases, and you're gonna cause this damage, and you're gonna end up with kids when you're a kid, and it was just don't, 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 all this like box around it, sex is bad. Well then everybody got married, right? And so I imagine this situation where somebody goes into marriage thinking that sex is bad, and they feel guilty about that. They feel guilty about sex. Well then, over time, imagine that that person now, they no longer feel guilty. Why? Because they've matured in their understanding of what God wanted. They don't need to feel guilty in the first place. That's maturity, right? But what if you had the conviction that sex in movies is bad? Watching sex on TV is bad. But 20 episodes later of Game of Thrones, or 20 years later of uh, Law and Order or Pick Something, right? You're like, whatever, doesn't bother me anymore because I'm numb to it now. And so I think that the honest, when you're honestly looking at this, you start with, did I get numb? I think our our tendency is gonna be like, of course I matured. (laughs) I grew out of that. (laughs) When I say maturity, I mean, did you search the scriptures? Did you talk to God? Did you get revelation that you have freedom in Christ to do this thing? If not, you got numb. Did I used to think this was wrong? Okay, that's my conscience. So maybe you get through... uh, Is it forbidden in scripture? Is my conscience clear? And at this point, you're like, yeah, I'm good to do this. Next question. What's my motivation? Is my my motivation to do this thing that is is allowed sinful? Why am I doing it? Is the reason I'm doing it a problem? Am I drinking to to celebrate a a wedding or a a holiday like, like Jesus would have done or am I drinking to get drunk? Am I, am I, drinking to escape my life? Am I just on autopilot? That's just what we do every day, or every Friday, or you know, every time I'm with Jim or you know, Billy or you know, it's like this. What we do is it autopi- Why am I doing this? Because why matters. Why am I wearing this outfit? Am I wearing this outfit so that someone will think I'm hot? Which by, by the way, like no. <laughs> But seriously though, I think that sometimes we get, we, we, we choose clothes so that we will get attention from the opposite sex, maybe in a sexual way. We're, we're trying to get attention, that like the clothing choice wasn't the problem, the reason you put it on is the problem. Am I getting this tattoo to, to win some kind of approval or is it because I actually like the thing? right? Like, um, I don't know if you guys know much about modern church culture, but like, if you don't have a tattoo and you go into a coffee shop, nobody knows you're a pastor. That's just, that's the way it is now. See, here's the thing. Jesus is super clear that God cares as much or more about your heart, about your intentions, as he does about your behavior. When he says, if you lust after a woman in your heart and you imagine having an adulterous affair, it's the same difference. If you imagine killing your brother or beating him up in your head, that's the same difference as actually doing that thing. What happens in your heart matters. What's my motivation? Why am I doing this? All right, so remember at the beginning, uh, we all get the same answers with scripture, but at this point, every one of us might have a different answer. By the time we've asked, is my conscience clear and what's my motivation, we've sort of started to separate into some people that feel comfortable doing something and some people that don't. And that's the reason that we get into these gray areas, right? Here's the problem. It's possible to get through all three of those things and still do it wrong. The last question is from what we read today. Is it loving? Scripture says it's okay. I don't feel guilty doing it. I don't think I have a bad motivation. I should be good, right? Is it loving? And the reality is that a lot of you guys... A lot of us don't know our Bibles the way that we should and we might have a hard time with the first question. You you could start here and do really well because we fulfill what God wants in us if we're able to love people well. Is there anyone around me whose conscience wouldn't be clear if they did it too? Whatever it is you're doing. That outfit you put on, that drink you're having, that party you're going to, whatever it is. Is there anybody with me? that their conscience wouldn't be clear if they were doing it? If so, how does my exercise of my freedoms, my knowledge, knowledge puffs up, how does that endanger their freedom? See, I I think that we all know, we all know someone who knows more than us, but we like having them around. The opposite of the know-it-all, right? There's that, there's that, older person in your life or that friend of yours who's like really doing a great job at at this Christian life, but they know more than you, and, and they might disagree with you, but they love you so well. See, love is the platter on which knowledge is served. It would be better to have a small portion delivered on a well-organized platter than somebody tell you, man, I made you the best steak. You've never had food like this before. You you can't comprehend how good this thing is that I'm giving you and then throw it in the dirt at your feet. It's useless. Knowledge is only good served on a platter of love. It's the delivery of the knowledge. See, I, I imagine being the the weaker guy in this situation, right? Like, uh, I, I imagine um, that I'm a new Christian, and and you're my only Christian friend. Maybe you're the only person at work that knows Jesus, right? Or or you're that you're the aunt that has been praying for me and hoping for me and talking to me about Jesus, or whatever it is, right? But you see, I, I hypothetically here, like I I grew up with a an alcoholic dad, and every, every year, like seven, eight, nine years old, every night he'd fall asleep on the, the couch just drunk and I had to cover him up and, and, I, and I had to get myself ready in the morning to go to school while he was hungover, and, and I've decided I'm not gonna drink because that's what I saw growing up. You're my, you're my only Christian friend. I'm brand new to this and you invite me out to lunch and, and you get there before I get there and you're already two beers deep and you've got one on the table waiting for me. How kind. You're allowed, but is that loving? See, here's the problem. It's really not possible to answer this question, is it loving, if you don't know your people? See, we have this this term around here, this expression. We say across the street, across the world, that your mission field is both in Thailand and at work. Right, That your mission field is around the world, but it is also the people across the street from you. And for you to answer this question, is it loving, you've got you to know who you're with. It matters that you pay attention to the environment. Who's in the room? Is it loving for you to do what you're doing? And listen, I've, I've got a side note. Um, there's a difference between not doing something because you're around somebody that's weak and you love them, and not doing something because somebody else disagrees with you. did you catch that? Because I, I think we, we have a tendency to put all of that together, and so there is a difference like i'm going to not do something because this person uh, they don't know what I know and, and what they're doing might be a sin to them i 'll refrain versus This other group in the church or the church culture that just disagrees with me, that's different. Let's say, hypothetically, you're having a Christmas Eve service and some guy shows up with a bullhorn out on the corner, hypothetically, in the Redlands in 2020. And his problem is that, that we're celebrating Christmas and, and Christmas is a pagan holiday. Don't you guys know that that started as a winter solstice tradition somewhere in, in Europe? And like, you guys, you're, you're getting too close to this paganism and you're taking people to hell by celebrating Christmas. And just like in, in 1 Corinthians 8 with the meat, we're like, yeah, we know that that was on the calendar for the pagans and we took it and now it's on the calendar for us and we're celebrating Jesus. That wasn't a real thing in the first place, Right? Here's the thing, we didn't need to change what we were doing because he disagreed. That's legalism. If somebody was uncomfortable celebrating Christmas and they celebrated Christmas because of me, that's different. And so legalism is just as big of a problem as license because neither one of them are loving. And Jesus is actually a, a great example. Jesus had no problem butting heads with the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, about their rules, right? Like, think of the Sabbath. They said, you can't celebrate the Sabbath. You can't, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. And God just said, keep the Sabbath holy, right? And he, it was more for you to rest. And these guys had made all of these rules around the rules. And so Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath. He does not care what they think. He's not gonna bend to their legalism because what was the loving thing to do in the first place? To heal a guy, right? The question of is it loving comes up all over when we're looking at Jesus and when we're looking at the apostles, when we're looking at our our favorite people in the faith. What you'll find is that they are loving well. And so I'm gonna leave you with a point and then a question. We need our love to outpace our knowledge. See, I think we, we tend to, we think we need to know more. If I only knew what to do, if I only knew what not to do, then I'd grow, right? And I think a lot of times we think, like, at the beginning of the year, like, we set goals. How many of you guys have already failed for this year? Okay, the rest of you were smart enough to not set any goals, right? Because by the third or fourth day. Yeah, so we have this tendency like, I need, I need, this year I'm gonna get more information. I'm gonna go to this Bible study. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn this characteristic of God. I'm gonna, and, and when I know more, then I'll grow up. And see, knowledge isn't bad, but we need to love more than we know. We need our love to outpace our knowledge. And so what that means then is, as we grow in knowledge, We have to grow even more in love. The most knowledgeable people need to be the most loving people. Does that make sense? Because it's really dangerous in reverse. The most mature Christians aren't the ones who know the most. In fact, sometimes those are the most damaging Christians because they know something and they're gonna beat you over the head with it. The most mature Christians are the ones who are patient with other people, who are kind. They accept people without accepting bad behavior. We need to let our love outpace our knowledge. I'm gonna take you back real quick to something else in Romans 14. Remember that that parallel passage? Two verses I wanna show you in there. Verse 13, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Verse 22, further down. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Let that soak in for a second. I didn't know that was in there until I was like really starting to parse the the pat. I'm like, did he say that? Whatever you believe about this gray area stuff, in his case, meat and, and alcohol was chapter 14 of Romans. Whatever you believe about this gray area stuff, if it's not black and white in scripture, shut up. That's what Paul says. He says, keep it between you and God. It's great that you have a conviction. Live into that. Honor God with that and keep it to yourself. And listen, it goes both ways. See, here's the problem. I think Paul is calling us to proselytize our beliefs, but we have a tendency to want to proselytize our convictions. We want people to read the, the same Bible translation that we read. We want people to dress the way that we want people to dress at at church, right? Or or you can only eat wings at a certain type of restaurant or um, you're allowed to have alcohol but you realize that like wine in the Old Testament was like really diluted, you gotta get wine coolers, that's the limit or whatever. (laughs) Whatever it is, right? We have this tendency to take our convictions and make that part of the message. And Paul says, look, this is about Jesus and the gospel and salvation and people going to hell. Make it about that. And all the gray area stuff? Keep it between you and God. Keep that to yourself. And so I said I'd have a question too. Let's end with this question. What am I not doing because of love? And listen, you might fall into one of these two camps, the restrictive camp, the freedom camp. If you're in in the freedom camp, then you need to ask yourself, am I not dressing in a certain way? Am I not um, saying certain things, like, like maybe I, I talk a certain way about myself that's like sarcastic, but when I do that around people um, that that don't know I'm being sarcastic, they start talking about themselves that way and they mean it. Am I not eating certain things? Am I not drinking? You can fill in the blank. What am I not gonna do? that I'm allowed to. Jesus says for me it's okay. If there's nothing on that list for you, and you either don't know the people around you, or you're not loving them. What are you not doing because of love? Maybe you're in the other camp. Maybe you you grew up in that traditional um, restrictive viewpoint of how we live in the gray areas. What am I not doing because of love? I'm not imposing my convictions on you about things that Bible doesn't say are sin. My preferences my traditions, I'm going to keep that to myself, out of love for you, because I want you to grow towards Jesus, not towards my convictions, so here's the thing, at the the beginning of the year, we all set goals, and listen, I want to grow, you want to grow, we want to mature this year, what if we made a point of growing in how well we love people more than we grew in our knowledge, what if at the end of 2021, we were able to say, this year, I loved people better than I've ever loved people. Did you learn anything? I don't know, but I love people really well. What if, what if our church wasn't known as a place where we know a lot? What if our church was the most loving church in town? What if when, when you said, I go to Life Community, and I've heard of them, they took care of my brother. What if our church lived this out? That love was actually more important than our knowledge as we grew? What if we made a point to lay down our freedoms and our rights in order to walk beside people in their journey towards Jesus? And what if, in love, we led people out of the bondage of unnecessary rules, but in order to do that in love, it's never gonna be in the moment. It's never at the bar (laughs) that you're like, you should drink, you know you're free, right? What What if we find ways to love people in the moment and then love them out of legalism as well? Both of those things. What am I not doing because of love? Let me pray over you guys real quick. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you love us. If we were just stuck living under your knowledge, we'd be in trouble. Thank you that you love us more than you know about us. Help us to live that out, that we would love people so well that it doesn't matter what we know what we know we're allowed to do or what we know we shouldn't do, if that didn't get in the way of us loving people, imagine the impact we'd make for the kingdom. Would you, would you give us that mindset as we leave here today and as we look forward to this year? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The church may leave the building.